Hey everyone, this is Johnny Martinez, pastor of Restoration Church, and welcome to our podcast. We hope this podcast inspires you and encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Uh, If you have your Bibles, we're going to continue in our Mark series, Mark chapter 7. If you would turn with me there today uh, to Mark chapter 7. If you're new for the very first time, I want to welcome you. Uh, Whether you're watching online or you're here in person, uh, we're so glad that you're here with us today. Uh, We're really taking a journey through the entire gospel of Mark, uh, section by section by section. And what I really love about uh, doing that is about going through a book of the Bible, is that especially with today's passage, uh, you, it forces the pastor and it forces the preacher to preach on things that he normally wouldn't preach on. And I think this is one of the things that you really never hear being taught in church today or especially this passage. But I think it's very important for our lives as believers and it's very important for our church. So Mark chapter 7 verses 1 through 13. Uh, before I read it, let me just give you a quick context. Jesus so far has been ministering in the region of Galilee, mainly to Jewish people, but he's about to make that transition to minister to people who are uh, who are Gentiles, and this is kind of the beginning of his Gentile ministry. So Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, let's read it. It says this, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples, Jesus' disciples, ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Let's pray. God, we come before you today with such an interesting text. And I pray that you would speak to us powerfully through your word today. Here at Restoration, we hold your word to be inerrant, infallible, and inspired, and the sole authority for our spiritual life and for our spiritual sustenance. And so, God, I pray that you would speak to us today, that you would feed our souls with your word, that you would help us 
see those areas in our life where maybe our views, our tradition, our beliefs, our doctrine is kind of off. And God, give us assurance in those areas where we're on the right course, rightly dividing and studying your word. God, we lift you up in this place. Open our hearts. Speak to us clearly through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Today I titled the message, Truth Versus Tradition. Truth versus tradition. When I was a young adult, uh, I remember having a conversation with a guy who um, was trying to evangelize me. At that time, I was a Christian, and uh, I was sitting, uh, actually it was Christina and I, we were sitting down uh, you know, at, at GCC. I was going to college at that time, and we're just hanging out there, and this man approached me. And uh, he's like, hey, he was telling me about Jesus. And I'm like, hey, I, I know who Jesus is, and he's my Savior. And I was telling him those things. But he kept on insisting and insisting a certain teaching or belief. And he, essentially what he told me, his main point of his conversation was that I needed to repent after every sin. He said, you need to repent of your sin after every sin, no matter if it's a thought, no matter if it's a tiny action, no matter what it is, you have to repent. If you don't repent, he said, then you're going to go to hell. And I, the first thing I thought was like, man, this guy must be joking, right? Like think about how many times you and I sin in a day. I mean, just think about how, many, how much sin we have in our life. And essentially, it was saying that every time you, you sin, you have to stop and you repent. And you stop and you repent. And, you stop. and if you don't repent and something happens and you don't repent, something happens to you. And I asked him this question. I said, so you're telling me, after I figured out he was serious, I said, you're telling me that if I don't repent after, let's just say I have an impure thought or just something like that, or I'm really mad at someone and cuss them out or you know, whatever, right? And if I don't repent at that moment and I get hit by a bus and I'm going, hell, yes, you are, he told me. And I was like, man, that is burdensome. Like, I just felt the burden, not for myself, but for that this guy had upon his life. And so really, and I could tell you that that's not what the scripture teaches at all. Like, the scripture doesn't teach that at all. And so what this man was doing, he was elevating his belief or his opinion or his preference or maybe he kind of was handed down that teaching from someone maybe he has this tradition and he was elevating right his tradition his preference or whatever it may be over what the word of God really says and that's what he was doing you know what uh, if you've been a believer um, for a while now too that's, that's just one of the ways, uh, one of the things, or one of the topics, or one of the issues that we see. Over the years, I've seen many, many other topics or doctrines or beliefs that have been elevated above God's word. I've seen people's opinions or I've seen people's preferences uh, be claimed as truth when it's really not true. Let me just give you some examples. There's some people that believe that you have to use a certain translation of the Bible. And if you don't use that certain translation of the Bible, then boy, you're a sinner. You don't have the true word of God. And so they elevate that uh, you know, above the word of God. There's some people who say, hey, you have to have church on Saturday. Like you have to have church on Saturday. That's God's holy day. And if you do it any other day, 
then you're sinning. And it's a sin to do that. There's some people who say, hey, you, you can't celebrate Christmas or any secular holiday. And let me give you the scriptures to prove it. And let me, let, me, let me kind of make an argument for that. But the truth is, scripture doesn't say anything about that. There's people who say, hey, you have to dress a certain way. You have to dress a certain way because that's what the scriptures say. Hey, if you, man, if you get tattoos, man, growing up, if I got a tattoo, man, I was, I was far from God. I was completely far from God. If I got a tattoo, thank God I haven't gotten a tattoo, but I'm saying, you know, people say, hey, if you get a tattoo, you're done drinking. Hey, if, if you drink, it's a sin. If you drink, it's, it's, a, it's a huge, huge sin. I grew up in that type of culture. Now, let me just make a side note here. Uh, is, does the Bible speak about getting drunk? Absolutely it does. That's sinful and that's wrong. Does the Bible speak about not causing other people to stumble who have an issue? Yes, that's wrong. But there's nothing wrong in the scriptures that say you cannot drink. If anything, guess what we're going to be doing in heaven? There's going to be wine in heaven. So those of you that don't like to drink, there's going to be some wine in heaven for you to drink. And for those of you that do, there's going to be some pretty sweet wine. Communion. Communion is one of them. Some people say you have to take communion every single week. I actually got yelled at once at a church because we didn't take communion every single week. Again, Scripture doesn't say you have to take it every single week. Hymns. Man, I've seen this one a lot. You have to, like church is about hymns. You can't use that modern stuff. You can't use that modern worship church. It's simply about hymns. I've seen church splits over the pastor taking out a set of drums. Because you're not supposed to use those drums. It's Scripture. Dancing, boy, I don't even want to go there. I mean, dancing, you can't dance because dancing leads to dancing. You know what I'm saying? Secular music, right? All of these things and just recently too with the election, right? Let's just be real. We're here. We're honest. We're truthful here, right? Like we're just truthful. If you don't vote a certain way, if you're a Christian and you don't vote a certain way, then boy, you're pretty close to sinning. You're pretty close to sinning. Scripture doesn't say you have to vote either way. It doesn't. But boy, those commandments, right? Like, like those traditions, those beliefs, those preferences, those opinion over what God's word really says. There's recently too, with the social justice movement, I've seen books after books after books after articles from pastors saying that your church, that a pastor's church has to be multicultural. Like it has to be. And if a pastor's church isn't multicultural, then the pastor, there's something wrong with the pastor. That the pastor's sinning. That there's something wrong with him if his church isn't diverse. Could it be just that he lives in a demographic where all the people look the same? Could it simply just be that he pastors a church where God is sending those type of people to him and they just look the same? And as I look out here at Restoration Church, we're pretty diverse, though. And I love it. I'm not going to lie. I love it. I love diversity. But, man, I'm telling you, some pastors are feeling that pain. Like, man, am I wrong? Am I sinning if my church all looks the same? And so tradition and culture and views and preferences and opinions are being elevated 
above the word of God. People claim truth by adding to the scriptures. They claim truth where God is silent. They claim truth by twisting the scriptures to their own preferences and opinions. They claim truth by taking scripture out of context. So how does Jesus feel about that? How does Jesus feel about his followers? I include it because trust me, I've been guilty of it. How does he feel about that? Well, I'm glad you asked because that's what we're going to be talking about today. Two main points today in this text. Number one is this, the challenge. I want you to see the challenge here in verse seven through, uh, I'm sorry, verse one through verse five. The Pharisees are about to challenge Jesus. Let me just kind of read this passage again. It says, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Just so you know, it's in parentheses there because Mark is writing to a Gentile audience. And so this is a Jewish custom and he has to explain why Jews do that. Verse five, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So look what Mark says. Mark says that the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they come headhunting for Jesus. They, they, in previous chapters in Mark, they've already said, hey, we want to kill this guy. Like we want to kill Jesus. And so now they're sent, right, from the main church, from Jerusalem, from the religious hub to Jesus to try to catch him breaking the law. I mean, they completely hate Jesus they hate Jesus because he claimed he was the son of God. They hated Jesus because he did not obey their man-made rules. They hated Jesus because he associated himself with sinners and tax collectors and all kinds of unclean people. And so these religious leaders, these religious snobby people didn't like Jesus because of that. They didn't like Jesus because he was gaining influence with the people. And so if Jesus was gaining influence with the people, that means that the religious leaders of the day were losing influence with the people and they were not happy at all. So the religious leaders did not catch Jesus breaking any part of the law, but they did catch his followers. They did catch a few of Jesus' disciples catching or breaking the law. So what was the, what was the crime? Like what was the law that they broke? Well, they were eating, Mark tells us, they were eating with unwashed hands. They were eating with defiled, unclean hands. And this isn't a hygiene thing, right? Like, like this isn't a hygiene thing. It's a, it's a, it's a ceremonial impurity type of thing. The word translated defiled in the original language simply means common. That's all it means. But it also came to be used in Judaism of anything that was ritually impure or unworthy of God's presence. And that was the crime. That was the charge. They were eating with unwashed, impure hands. They were contaminated. And look what Mark says. They ate with these defiled hands. Now, where, where, did, where do these 
religious leaders get this tradition or law or commandment? Well, this commandment actually originated in Exodus chapter 30, verse 19. And the Bible in the Old Testament commanded all priests, not all people, all priests to wash their hands before entering the temple of meetings and before making sacrifices. All priests, not all people. But though it was only all priests, uh, required for all priests, all Jews began to do it about 200 years before Christ. But by Jesus' day, it was firmly established as a requirement by the religious leaders that every single Jewish person who wanted to truly obey the word of God and truly obey God and stay clean and pure must wash their hands. Here's the thing, though. The command was never for all people. The command was only for priests. And so these religious leaders were adding to the word of God. These religious leaders were requiring something of people that God never required of them. It was strictly for the priest. And Mark gives us an example. He says, hey, when they go to the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And so, for example, let's say that a Jewish person is in the marketplace and they touch someone who's a Gentile. They they touch something impure or unclean. What they they would do, they would go into this Jewish, after leaving the marketplace, they would go into this Jewish like bathtub looking thing and they would wash there before eating dinner. They would do that every single time if they came into contact with someone impure. And even sometimes when they didn't come into contact with someone who was impure, they would still do that to ritually be clean and pure. Mark tells us this though. Not only do they do that with marketplaces and pots and pans and all kinds of stuff, he says this, and this is so key, and there are many other traditions. There are many other traditions, a lot of other traditions that they had that they elevated above the word of God. There's a a resource or a document called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was a uh, a really gathering or compilation of Jewish oral laws um, that was really kind of finished at at the end of the second century AD. And here was the point of the Mishnah. The Mishnah was to put a fence around the law. So the focus of these oral traditions, these oral traditions, the Mishnah, was to protect the word of God. Like that's what they were trying to do. So it actually started off as a really good thing. They were, trying to, they were trying to protect the word of God and to help people keep the law. But a lot of the Pharisees, though, it kind of turned bad. A lot of the Pharisees considered these traditions, these oral interpretations and law and extra rules and extra traditions and extra rituals, they actually considered it to be fully authoritative, even claiming that they had been that the Mishnah was received from God. And so this fencing that they put around the word of God to try to protect it and to try to help people follow the word of God quickly, quickly, quickly became burdensome to people. It became a source of great burden. And instead of freeing people, the religious leaders actually enslaved people because they added their traditions to the word of God. Let me give you some examples. And I, these, these are no jokes. Like, this is for real. For example, 
looking in the mirror on the Sabbath was forbidden. Because if you looked in the mirror on the Sabbath and saw a gray hair, which by the way, I saw some, my grays are coming in here. Man, I'm getting older. I'm getting older. Thank God for Rogaine. Okay, whatever. Um, uh, he said, so if, if you cannot look at yourself in the mirror because if you saw a gray hair, you might be tempted to pull the gray hair out, to pluck the hair. And that was considered work. And that was considered sinful. But God never gave us that command. They added to it. Let me give you another example. You also could not wear false teeth on the Sabbath. If they fell out and you picked them up, that would be considered working. I mean, think about how ridiculous that is. Think about, this one gets even more ridiculous. So rabbis, Jewish rabbis debated about a man with a wooden leg. If a man with a wooden leg was in his house and his house started to burn, was he able to then pick up his wooden leg and run out the door? Would it be considered work? Like, just, just think about these extra things that they were adding to the word of God. On the Sabbath, you could spit on the floor, but you got to be careful with you, where you spit. If you spit on the floor and you have to scuff it up, that was considered work. Again, how burdensome is all. And I just read four of them, and there's tons of them. There's pages and upon pages upon pages of rules and rituals and traditions and preferences and opinions that the religious leaders added to the word of God. They added to the word of God. And so finally, here's the challenge. The, the, the religious leader says, hey, Jesus, why do your disciples, right, not wash their hands according to what? The traditions of the elders. Notice that when the religious leaders asked Jesus why his disciples ate with unclean hands. They didn't cite scripture. They simply cited the traditions of man, the traditions of elders. So that's the challenge. Point number two is the response. How does Jesus respond to people taking preferences, opinions, traditions that were handed down to them, right? above the word of God. But the word of God does never speak stuff that's, the word of God is silent towards. How does Jesus respond? Verse six, and he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, the people, the people honor me, honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Boy, that's some straight up truth, right? Like Jesus did not hold back. Why do we always have this picture of Jesus that he's so nice, that he's some like scrawny dude and he's just all oh, love and peace, bro. Like I was gonna do the peace, but I totally forgot how to do it. And, uh, but why is that? Why do we like, think that's Jesus? Jesus just called the religious leaders hypocrites. You're fake all you do is pretend. That's straight truth from Christ. He's straight up. And so Jesus responds with a quote from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And boy, this must have been a slap in the face of the Jewish religious leaders of the day. It was a smack in the face. 
You see, in chapter 29 of Isaiah, Isaiah is prophesying that God will both punish and save Jerusalem, even though they have been hypocritically trying to control or manipulate God with their false worship. Jerusalem was just paying lip service to God. They were only telling God what he wanted to hear so they can get what they wanted. That was it. It was empty worship. It was simply lip service. It was talking the talk, but their hearts were not in it. And so Isaiah prophesied that against Jerusalem. And so Jesus is using that same prophecy as judgment upon the religious leaders of the day. And Jesus tries to make two points in this quote. First, that people and the religious leaders were simply giving God lip service rather than true dedication of the heart. Let me just kind of give you a side note real quick. The religious leaders, for them, it was so much easier to check off boxes than to check their hearts. And isn't that true? It's so much easier for us believers to check off boxes. I went to church. I gave. I served. So much easier to check off boxes than to check your heart, than to check our heart, because that is difficult. That is scary, but it's necessary. The second point that Jesus was trying to make here with Isaiah's quote is that they have elevated their own traditions above the authentic commands of God. He says in verse 8, you leave the command of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he's not done there. He's not done there. He's like, actually, let me give you an example of what you've done. Religious leaders, let me actually give you an example from Scripture of what you've done, of how you've elevated tradition over the word of God. Verse nine, it says this. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corbin, that is a gift to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and many such things you do. Again, Jesus quotes from Isaiah. And in this passage here, he's quoting from Exodus. So Jesus, as he's engaging with the religious leaders. He's not using his ideas, his opinions, his preferences. No, he's going to the word of God as his primary source of authority. Notice that he gives two quotes. The first is from Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. And it's, uh, the, fir- it's the fifth commandment. And it concerns uh, honoring one's parents. Honor your father and your mother is the fifth commandment. And so honoring parents was among the highest of values in biblical times. I mean, honoring your parents is super important in a Jewish tradition. And in Jewish tradition, it was especially honorable to care for your parents when they were older, when they couldn't take care of themselves. 
Exodus chapter 20. And then he gives the scripture for the penalty of disobeying their parents from Exodus 21. He says that uh, if you disobey your parents, it's punishable by death. So parents with teenagers, write down Exodus 21 verse 17. You're going to need that. You're going to need, God said in Exodus, but he quotes scripture. He says, this is what God says. Honor your parents. Care for them. Honor them. Then he says, what did he say? But you say. But you twist it up. But you create loopholes. But you have your preferences because you don't like certain things. Because you have your opinions. But you change up the word of God. But you subtract the word of God. But you cherry pick only the verses that you like and that you're comfortable. But you add the word to the word of God. And so Jesus uses this example of Corbin. What is Corbin? What does that mean? What is that Corbin? Corbin is essentially, it means an offering or a gift or a vow to God. And so Jesus cites this example of Corbin where a son, a son could withhold support for his parents by declaring his property to be dedicated to God and then off, he's, he's off the cuff with his parents. He's, he's off the, he, he's good. So let me give you an example. A, a Jewish man would have a, a gift or property and, because, and it was intended to be given to his parents. It could be finances, it could be whatever. But, but he's like, hey, you know what? I'm actually gonna give this to God instead of my parents. And the Jewish leader said, that's perfectly okay for you to do. It's perfectly okay to dishonor your parents if that gift is a gift to God. But Jesus is saying that, what? Jesus is like, you're, you're basically saying that it's okay to break the fifth commandment and take that gift and give it to God. And just because you're giving it to God, that means it's okay to dishonor your parents. That's what Jesus is saying. Again, they're adding to the word of God. They're adding to this truth of God. People basically said, man, we can serve God by disobeying our parents. And so Jesus says, verse 9, verse 13, I'm sorry. He says, when you do this to the religious leaders, he says, you void the word of God. You void the word of God. Notice, did you notice the progression of the religious leaders in this passage? Look at verse 7. They teach the commands of God. Verse 8, they leave the commands of God. Verse 9, they reject the commands of God. And number 13, they make the word of God void. You see the projection there, the progression there. They teach it, they leave it, they reject it, and they make the word of God void. And boy, have I seen that time and time again. It starts as simple as, a belief or a tradition that was passed down. I heard a quote that said, because grandmama taught it, we caught it. And so it's true. With all these secondhand knowledge things that we've inherited, all of these preferences and opinions, we must compare them to the word of God. So here's the big idea for today, church. If you're gonna remember anything, remember this. Very simple, very simple. 
God's truth over man's tradition always. God's truth over man's tradition always. Always. It's God's truth, God's word that is the sole authority for our lives. Every decision we make, every opinion we have is based on solely the word of God. And so I just want to get practical here towards the end of this message. Two things. How do we deal with someone, maybe a friend or a family member, who's always pushing these views, these beliefs, these traditions, and saying, hey, if you don't do this, then you're wrong. If you don't do this, or if you don't think this way, what do we do? What, what, what do we do? Let me give you just some basic thoughts on it, very practical things. Here's what I like to do. And it's not because I want to debate people or whatever, but I really want them to think through what they're telling me. The first, the first question I always ask is this. Can you show me where? Can you show me where? Like, can you show me in the scriptures where you're getting it? And, and if when you show me, can you explain it to me in its context? Like, don't just rip out a verse and make it say something that it really doesn't mean. Like, can you show me, like, where? Can you point to the specific verse? Could you talk to me through the context of what you're telling me to do? Can you show me where? And, and, and it's not me being a jerk or whatever. It's just saying, I really want to know. I really want to know where, where you're getting this from. And just explain it to me. I would like for you to explain it to me. Nine times out of ten, they don't find it, and they don't have an answer. That's just the honest truth. Nine times out of ten. And so, church, we must know the truth. We must stand up for truth. Right? We have to. And that's what Jesus was doing. Essentially, that's what he was doing, was standing up for biblical truth. And this world, church, needs truth. This world today that we live in needs solid biblical truth. It, it does. And not only does it need truth, but it needs grace as well, right? Like this world also needs grace as well, the same way that we need grace. Because truth without grace is simply harshness, especially when you're having a conversation with someone you don't agree with. Truth without grace, all truth is bringing in the hammer, it's simply harshness. And truth, I'm sorry, grace without truth Truth is simply enablement. We just, we just continue to enable people to believe whatever they want. If we, if we lean on grace, and I'm just being gracious, but I'm not going to tell the truth, then we just simply enable people to have whatever beliefs they want and not steer them towards the truth. Now, so we must pray to God that he would give us both truth and grace whenever we talk to someone like that. Because here's the thing, and this is so good. You can be right in your argument, but you can be totally wrong in your approach, and no one wins. It doesn't matter if you're right, if you're being a jerk about it. No one wins. How did I respond 
to that man that one day. After he said, hey, if you don't repent every single day, like you're going to hell, man. Like, how did I respond to him? Did I respond in truth and grace? How did I respond? Obviously, I'm a pastor, I'm perfect. Obviously, I responded with great balance of grace and truth. Just kidding, guys. I was a jerk. I was a total jerk to him. Honestly, I was like, you don't even know what you're talking about. And I left. I just bolted. I mean, I'm being honest, right? Can we be real at church or no? Is it, is it cool for the pastor to be real or do we have to put on the mask? And I was like, dude, you don't even know what you're talking about. Peace out. And I left in their hand. I remember Christina's like, dude, you're such a jerk. <laughs> but it didn't help anyone. I could have sat there in gentleness. In love. Hey, dude, let's just talk, man. Give me your phone and let's continue this conversation. Help me understand where you're coming from. But I didn't. That's how you deal with someone who's legalistic like that. I love what uh, Augustine says. He says, in essentials, right, in essentials, in things that are essential, church, the deity of Christ, the resurrection, the second coming, uh, faith alone, by grace alone. Those in, in the essentials, unity. Let's unite over the essentials, right? Like the main things, like the gospel-centered things, salvation issues. Let's unite over those. In non-essentials, right? Things where the scripture isn't so clear. Things where we can kind of go both ways, right? Augustine says liberty. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, which kind of you could go both ways among believers, liberty in all things charity. It's so good. It's so good. So how do we deal with a person who's trying to push us towards their beliefs that are unbiblical? Can you show me? Truth and grace. Here's the harder part. How do you deal with your own legalism? How do you deal with our own? Legalism. Here's how we deal with it. God, can you show me? God, can you show me where I have placed my opinions, my preferences, my traditions, and I've never checked them truly according to your word? Can you show me where I've been a hypocrite? Can you show me where I have not, not rightly divided your word? Can you show me, God, where I have elevated my preferences over your word? That's the hard part. God, show me. Show me. And church, I, th I think that's why I have such a just deep conviction to preach as best as I can to the word of God because we need to know the word of God. We need to know the word of God. Are you tired of, this is not even in my notes, are you tired of like going to church for years and years and years? Not even know the basics of what you believe and why. I've met countless and countless and countless of people like that. 
that's why at restoration, we're just like, hey, I'm not here to entertain you. I'm here to equip you. I'm here to teach you the scriptures so you know the scriptures in their context. We must be students of the word. I was just talking to a young man and, I, and he was telling me, he's like, hey, I, I need some advice. I need, I need you to hold me accountable. I want to grow more in my knowledge of Jesus, of his word. You know, he's like, I'm not a theologian or anything like that. And I go, stop right there. Every believer is a theologian. Every believer is a theologian. You have to know your word. You have to know your word. So why does this matter? Why does this matter? Why does this series or why does this sermon matter? Because Jesus says that the truth will set you free. Truth sets free tradition enslaves. The truth of God, the correct truth of God sets people free from sin, from Satan, from eternal spiritual death. The word of God sets people free. That's why it's matter. That's why it matters that we preach the word of God week in, week out. That's why it matters that you know the truth because the truth that sets you free, God wants to use you to set other people free. Know the truth and point them to the truth. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to those who give generously to this ministry. Without you, this ministry would not be possible. If you feel led to give, please use the link below as we seek to make a difference in people's lives. Also, please make sure to share this with your family and your friends. Again, thank you so much for listening.